Welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the show that covers the history of DC Comics from the very beginning. I'm your host, Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website with loads of features that provide background on comics from all eras and publishers. In this podcast, I've been looking at stories and features contained in the earliest DC Comics. This is episode 9, the second part of a two-part look at the comics published during the year 1936. The company that became DC Comics was, at the time, known by the name National Allied Publications, and it was owned by Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. Nicholson founded the company in late 1934 and published his first comic book, New Fun, in January 1935. He added a second title, New Comics, in late 1935, changing the title of New Fun to More Fun to avoid confusion. There wasn't a comics industry at that time, so Nicholson was forced to pioneer the new medium without a guide for what would be successful. He tried different formats and sizes, but his decision to seek out new content rather than reprint existing newspaper comic strips was what set his comics apart. The one existing publication, Famous Funnies, was filled with reprints. New competition, such as Dell Comics, arose in 1936, but still the focus remained on reprinted material. By working with unproven material and creators, Nicholson spared himself the expense of licensing. But, despite the fact that his comics were selling, eh, okay, they weren't successful enough to generate much profit. Almost from the start, Nicholson was under a financial burden. He took credit from his distributors, printers, and others, but he often couldn't stay ahead of the payments. Creators who worked during this time period have noted that they weren't paid for the work they did, either on time or at all. This led to some artist turnover and sudden cancellation of features. The following excerpt comes from an interview with artist Sheldon Mayer and originally appeared in the DC magazine The Amazing World of DC Comics, Issue 5, from 1975. Mayer says, My first work in comic books was for Wheeler Nicholson. I wandered into their office to show them my portfolio, and they hired me on the spot. They were thrilled with my work, and I didn't know that the enormous amount of money that they promised me was just big talk. They gave me a very involved contract. Of course, I was too young to sign a contract at that time, but I didn't know it, and it didn't seem to bother them. In reality, all the contract said was, if at the end of six months you're not making $25 a week, you can quit. I needed to buy some more bristleboard to fill the assignments, so I asked if they could advance me a check for a dollar, and one of the guys cashed it with the money they had received for a subscription that day. In the months that followed, I turned out 40 or 50 pages of art and story for a half dozen issues of new comics and new fun. Let me interject here with some actual facts. Only 20 pages of Mayer's work were actually printed in exactly four issues of New Comics. None in New Fun or More Fun. An additional four pages did turn up printed at Man and Cook's Comics Magazine. It's still possible that Mayer drew 40 or more pages, like he claims, but they weren't used. Now let's go back to the interview. One day I was waiting for a light to cross Fifth Avenue. Standing beside me was a tall, slender kid about my age, carrying a portfolio like mine. I looked at his portfolio, he looked at mine, I asked, 
You a cartoonist? He replied, yeah, you? Yeah. Working? Yeah, you? Yeah. Who for? Major Nicholson. Me too. Did you get paid yet? <laughs> Not a dime. Me neither. The guy was Walt Kelly, and we spent the afternoon at his place. At the time, he was having a great deal of trouble telling a story in pictures, because it really wasn't something he wanted to do at all. Of course, later on he learned very well, and did a great job on Pogo. I never did get paid by Nicholson until after I was working for Gaines. They were still publishing my stuff, and I asked for my material back, since I hadn't been paid. They gave me a check for $5 a page for the 8 pages of art they had in the office, and the check bounced. So this accounting of the way things worked at National Allied was pretty typical. It wasn't only artists who weren't getting paid, neither were the printers. Early issues of New Fun were printed at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Later, printing was handled at World Color Press, but Nicholson's unpaid debts were becoming a problem. Therefore, Nicholson needed to find a creditor and yet another new printer. Enter Harry Donenfeld. Harry was a New York kid who had been involved with some under-the-table business during Prohibition. In the early 1920s, he took over his brother's printing business and renamed it Donnie Press. He also helped gangsters like Frank Costello smuggle booze across the border from Canada using the printing company as a front. Late in the 1920s, Harry hired Jack Leibowitz, the son of an old client, to be his accountant. The skills of Jack and Harry complemented each other. Harry was the amiable salesman who built relationships. Jack was the meticulous number cruncher who managed costs and turned Harry's sales into profits. A long partnership was formed. Donenfeld entered the publishing business with racy pulp magazines like Spicy Detective shortly thereafter. When his distributor went bankrupt in the early days of the Depression, Donenfeld faced a serious problem. Harry and Jack solved the distribution crisis by forming their own distribution company, Independent News, in 1932. They paid for this with the help of Paul Sampliner, one of Harry's former print business clients. Sampliner had been part owner in Eastern News, the company which went bankrupt. Thusly, Harry became a publisher, a printer, and a distributor. This was the scene when Nicholson showed up on Harry's doorstep. The exact date of the meeting isn't clear. Some sources claim this occurred in early 1935, prior to the launch of the Major's second title, New Comics. Some circumstantial evidence, however, leads me to believe that it was late 1935 or early 1936. Specifically, the fact that the covers of the comics from 1936 had the abbreviation SM, which was used by the distributor McCall's, not independent news. And it wasn't until mid-year when the first comics printed at Donnie Prest were released. These are denoted by slick covers instead of the paper ones that had been used on earlier issues. In any case, a partnership deal was struck with Donenfield agreeing to print and distribute the Major's comics. A letter to Jerry Siegel from Nicholson has been found dated March 1936 in which the Major tells Jerry about the deal. He also requests more material from Siegel and Schuster. Part of the agreement includes Nicholson taking Harry and Jack as partners in a new organization, Detective Comics Incorporated. More Fun and New Comics were not originally part of Detective Comics Inc. 
they remained under the control of National Allied, which was reborn as Nicholson Publishing late in 1936. I'll provide more information about the short-lived partnership and additional company information in future episodes. Comic books, still being a relatively new medium in 1936, had yet to standardize a really integral aspect that modern readers take for granted. That was issue numbering. Like magazines, comics at the time simply had dates on the cover, not numbers. For example, the 12th issue of More Fun said August 1936 on the cover. The issue number did appear inside in the indicia. As this was the second year of publication for More Fun, it started using a numbering system like magazines. Therefore, the 13th issue was actually numbered Volume 2, Number 1. Magazines would switch volume numbers each year, so Volume 14 would indicate that the magazine was in its 14th year of publication. Volume numbering at National switched after 12 issues, despite the fact that it took over a year to produce those 12 issues, since a strict monthly schedule was not maintained. This is a very stupid system, if you ask me, but many magazines still use it. In any case, More Fun number 16 was the first to be numbered on the cover. Although the Indicia used the volume numbering system, in this case, volume 2, number 4, the cover used an incremental system leading number 16 to actually be printed on the cover. This system continued until late 1937. The last issue to employ the volume numbering system was issue 27, which was labeled volume 3, number 3 in the Indicia. Beginning with number 28, no numbering appeared inside. It was only on the cover. New Comics followed a similar system. Issue 13 was not numbered on the cover and said Volume 2, Number 1 in the Indicia. The next issue had Number 14 on the cover and Volume 2, Number 2 inside. Number 20 was the last issue to use the volume numbering in the Indicia. I'm thankful that they didn't continue to use volume numbers and start with a new Number 1 every year. The publishers of today would probably love that system, but as a collector and a fan, I hate it. More than two years later, I'm still bitter that they renumbered Action and Detective. But if they used this system, we'd be on Action Comics Volume 76. I actually think Aquaman might be getting pretty close to that volume numbering with all that the restarts there. Uh, dear DC, number ones may sell better in the short term, but you pissed on your own history by doing that. New 52, P.U. Now I think it's time to open up these 1936 comics and find out what stories were inside. We'll start with a nosy young blonde girl named Dale Daring. She was an adventurer who debuted in New Comics number 4. The tale entitled The Drew Mystery begins with Dale phoning her police friend, Lieutenant Dick Sparks, letting him know that she is paying a visit to Dr. Millard about the Drew case. Dale's occupation isn't made clear. She might work with the police either officially or as a private detective, or she might be a reporter like the newspaper heroine of the day, Jane Arden. Dale falls in trouble quickly when gangsters kidnap Millard. They leave her tied up in a, inside a burning house. Sparks arrives in time to save her. Later, following a tip from the gangster, on the gangster's car, Dick and Dale find the crooks at a remote lodge near Arrow Lake. While the crooks are questioning Millard, the detectives watch. 
Dale and her partner are surprised from behind by one of the crooks. They are rescued by a gray-haired hermit wearing an eye patch. He leads them to a cave containing a monkey, jungle cats, and a distraught man. Yeah, no kidding. A monkey and jungle cats in a cave. Okay. Dick asks the man his name, and the story ends. Seriously, what happened? These abandoned strips are very frustrating to read. Nevertheless, I didn't like the direction this was going anyway. It was taking a turn toward the ridiculous. I thought it was going to be a straightforward detective strip. Then they throw in this weird guy in the cave with the monkey. Maybe it's better that it ended before continuing to go off the rails. The art is actually pretty good, but the story doesn't give the reader enough information to really give a crap about it. The strip is signed Ryan. Every source I've found claims that this is Dick Ryan, about whom there is very little information available. One source claims he is the brother of a vaudeville performer, Ben Ryan, who composed songs for the likes of Jimmy Durante. I can neither confirm nor deny this claim. However, I do know that artist Dick Ryan did some other work in these early DC comics. These weren't stories, but rather humorous art pieces, entitled Bugville and Jungletown. Two Bugville drawings appeared in New Comics number 4 and 5. They depict a variety of funny scenes about bugs going about activities in a village. A third Bugville strip was published quite a bit later in Morphin number 20. I assume this was just an inventory piece that finally saw print, since it was published so far after the others. Ryan also drew Jungle Town, similar to Bugville in that it had funny scenes about a town in a town uh, with people going about activities, but in this case the people were jungle animals instead of bugs. It had elephants, giraffes, hippos, and other creatures. These were single-page drawings instead of two-page spreads like Bugville. These appeared in New Comics number 7, 8, 9, and 12. Ryan would leave National shortly after his arrival, probably another artist who didn't get paid. He went to work at the Chesler shop and contributed funny pages mostly featuring animals to the company that would become Centaur. He also had some early work in MLJ Comics, the company later known as Archie. Here's what I find strange though. The art of Dale Daring looks nothing like the art of Bugville or Jungletown. Dale's strip is drawn like a straight-up adventure strip, rather competently too. All of Ryan's work after he left DC looks the same as the funny animal nature of Jungletown. Since Dale's strip is signed simply Ryan with no first name, I wonder if this might be a different artist. Even the signatures look different, which doesn't prove anything necessarily, but certainly leads to my speculation. Given how little information I can find about Dick Ryan, it would not surprise me if this was someone else. About the only thing other than the name that is similar is the fact that Dale Daring runs from New Comics number 4 through 8, and the humor pieces appear around the same time, issues number 4 through 9, plus a couple of later ones that, like I said, might have been inventory pages. It's a mystery, but it's actually a, a more interesting one than the Drew mystery, the story that was actually published here. After a three-issue hiatus, Dale Daring actually does return in New Comics number 11, drawn by Alex Lovey. It's a brand new story, though, completely unrelated to this one. I'll cover that in a future episode. McGinnis of the Mounties was a feature that ran from New Comics number 4 through issue 12. 
McGinnis is a Canadian Mountie sent into the wilderness to find out who has been robbing and murdering fur trappers. He teams up with Old Man Dubois, a trapper in the area. They are soon attacked by a group of men who have been stealing furs. Another man shoots Dubois, seriously injuring him. McGinnis is forced to carry his friend to safety. The pair are then ambushed and pinned down in a ravine. Dubois' daughter, Yvonne, comes to rescue them by shooting one of the attackers. The outlaws circle around and capture her. McGinnis gives chase as they take her to a deserted cabin. Upon reaching the cabin, McGinnis is also caught. He and Yvonne are left inside while the outlaws set fire to the building. McGinnis manages to get loose before the flames reach them. They exit the burning cabin only to discover that the fire has lit the dry underbrush and ignited a forest fire. The duo douse themselves with water and stay low to avoid the smoke. They make it to a clearing. However, the outlaws are also caught in the forest fire. They call out for help. McGinnis heroically goes to their aid and brings them back to the clearing. When the wind shifts, the immediate danger passes. That's where the feature ends, which is a pretty decent stopping point. There is the implication that these are not the only members of the outlaw gang, but at least there is some resolution to the story, unlike the last one. The first episode of McGinnis is credited to J.C. Leonard, about whom I can find no information. His artwork was competent and clean, though it was a bit stiff. McGinnis's horse also looks misproportioned and way too small for his body. Subsequent episodes were credited to Babe Mather. His artwork is sketchier than Leonard's, but the movement seems more natural. Only the chapter in New Comics number 5 was in color, which I think helped that particular segment of the story. The later black and white episodes were not nearly as good. As was the case with Leonard, I can find no s solid information on Mather. This appears to be the only known comics work by either man. Some sources claim that Babe Mather was a pseudonym for Richard Matheson, the science fiction writer who wrote I Am Legend. I am skeptical of this because he was only 10 years old in 1936. Still, I did uncover information which revealed that the writer's first short story was published when he was just 8 years old by the Brooklyn Eagle, the newspaper which also printed early issues of New Fun. So I guess the possibility does exist that it really was Richard Matheson. I just have no confirmation of it. If it was him, this was a pretty impressive strip for a 10-year-old. Gordon Rogers, better known as Booty Rogers, was a newspaper strip artist who worked on strips such as Smilin' Jack in the late 1920s and early 1930s. He contributed two strips to National, which both appeared in New Comics number 5 and issue 12. The strips were titled Rattlesnake Pete and Rock Age Roy. Rattlesnake Pete was a western character who had adventures in a town called Pistol Hill, Arizona. Rogers was familiar with the state of Arizona, for he attended college at the University of Arizona. Pete was a humorous character with a long curled handlebar mustache. In the first adventure, Pete dodges what he thinks are bullets whizzing past his head. After taking cover, he is informed by Little Britches, his young nephew, that the bullets are really horseflies. In his second and final appearance, Pete demonstrates his skills as a tracker, but instead of tracking a rabbit, he succeeds in catching a skunk, which promptly releases its foul scent. 
Rock Age Roy is a caveman who anachronistically lives side by side with dinosaurs. Roy tries to ride one of the dinos, but has trouble climbing onto its back. He eventually gets a boost from a goat, which charges him and headbutts him into the air. In the next strip, Roy complains that all he ever does is eat and sleep. He then goes out into the jungle and dodges trouble of all sorts, from strange animals like the Elephog to natural disasters like a landslide. When he gets back to his cave, Roy complains again that nothing ever happens. Rogers was a pretty decent humor artist. The humor in these strips is quite juvenile, but it was in line with the audience these comics were intended for. His artwork is clean but stylish. I definitely find his style to be recognizable in his work elsewhere. Overall, I wasn't exactly laughing out loud at any of these, but I think both strips were pretty good. Rogers also created a one-shot, eight-page strip that appeared in More Fun Number 26 called Samson Jr. Following his work at National, Rogers would go on to create the comic strip character Sparky Watts. When Rogers entered the military for World War II, he did not expect to return, so he actually bumped off his character. Rogers survived the war, returned to work as an artist, and revived Sparky. He continued to draw for both comic strips and comic books until the early 1950s. He died in 1996. More humor strips would debut during the last half of 1936, including Hard Luck Harry by Bill Carney, which ran from New Comics No. 9 to New Adventure Comics No. 16. Carney was also doing P. Lion and Osa in more fun at the same time. Like that feature, Hard Luck Harry is a young anthropomorphic dog in search of adventure. After being thrown off a train, Harry wanders into a bar where he meets a tough sailor named Slugger. Harry takes a job aboard Slugger's ship, the Lazy Lucy, only to learn that it is not a paying job. He has been shanghaied. The cook, a Chinese dog named Chow, is in the same predicament. After a brief stint in the brig for trying to escape, Harry and Chow accidentally cause the entire ship to sink. The duo washes up on a sandy beach. They soon meet the natives who turn out to be cannibals. Harry and Chow are thrown into a pot of boiling water and cooked. Meanwhile, Slugger and the ship's captain also make it to shore. That's where this strip ends. While this is a funny animal strip, it reads very much like a straight-up adventure strip. Unfortunately, Chow is pro portrayed as a racial stereotype, and Slugger often uses racial slurs when talking to him. The strip has the feel of a cartoon, and you could easily substitute any number of animated characters in this story for Harry. That being said, it's lacking in anything truly special, and is unlikely to be memorable. Joe Eichberger was another one of the many artists that were only a blip on the comics landscape. He drew a trio of humor strips in both More Fun and New Comics. Unk was a comedic character with a bristled mustache drawn in much the same way as Jeff's from Mutt and Jeff. Unk has a talking dog that acts as his sidekick. His strip appeared in four issues beginning with More Fun number 12. In the first and funniest of these strips, he goes rabbit hunting. When the dog is into the woods to get the rabbit, he comes back with the rabbit holding a gun to his back. 
It reads very much like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. The other two strips are read about a boy who stops to play football while on his way to the store for groceries, and Tim starring a talking dog. Tim tries to break up a fight between two other dogs, only to have them both turn against him. Hardly great stuff, but these humor and gag strips were commonly used for filler material in early comics. Eventually, Henry Boltonoff would be DC's king of gag filler strips. He created a multitude of them, many of which can be seen on my website in the Henry Boltonoff Hall of Fame Gallery. But until Boltonoff's arrival at DC in the early 1940s, material like this was prevalent. The most prolific of the gag filler artists of this time was Russell Cole, whom I discussed in my last episode. His strip, Alger's Variety Showed, debuted in More Fun number 13 and appeared in most issues until number 34. The Variety Show didn't feature a regular character, instead it featured random gags and jokes. When the short-lived Henry Duvall strip was discontinued, Siegel and Schuster created a replacement strip for More Fun which debuted in number 11. The original name of the strip was Calling All Cars, and it starred Sandy Keene and the Radio Squad. However, a radio show, also called Calling All Cars, had already been running since 1933. It lasted until 1939. To prevent confusion, or perhaps because of trademark infringement, the title of the strip was changed to Radio Squad in More Fun number 18. Radio Squad was a police action serial. Within the first six panels of the first strip, we see a situation that modern readers would consider unbelievable or laughable, but was a standard behavior in many DC strips. What am I talking about? Well, it goes like this. Sandy Keene, a police officer and his partner in radio car K7, witness another car driving past them at reckless speeds. The cops go into action and force the rocketing roadster off the road. Sandy gets out to write the driver a ticket. The driver, Doris Bailey, thinks she won't be given a ticket because she's the daughter of the police commissioner. She's right, she doesn't get a ticket. Instead, Sandy takes the woman out of the car, bends her over his knee, and gives her a spanking. Wow, that's pretty messed up. I've never heard of this kind of punishment for traffic violations. If a public spanking was really the price for speeding, I think it would actually encourage me to drive the speed limit. Still, this kind of punishment in comics was very common in the Golden Age, and it even made its way into a few Silver Age stories. I think Lois Lane took a few spankings from Superman, and I know Batman at least threatened to do it to Catwoman. Of course, the most frequent recipients of spankings appeared in Wonder Woman strips written by her creator, William Marston. The Amazon spankings notwithstanding, I think the reason this punishment was used is that it was acceptable during these times to spank children, and these comics were largely written for kids. What do kids fear the most from authority figures then? Probably a spanking. So here we have the first appearance of a spanking in a DC Comics. This also happens to be the oldest issue in my personal collection, so I've got a highly desired collector's item, right? But this story isn't about spanking the girl. 
unfortunately. Instead, it resumes at the home of the commissioner, where Doris demands that her father invite Sandy over to lecture him about his conduct. Yeah, um, I would too. Before Officer Keene arrives, crooks barge into the house to abduct Doris. After Sandy arrives, the commissioner receives a phone call from the kidnappers, and one of them is known as the Purple Tiger. The gang leader demands that all evidence against him be turned over to secure Doris's release. The commissioner then tells Sandy that not only do the police not have any evidence against the gang's boss, they've never even heard of him. Sandy and the commissioner try to follow one of the crooks to the drop-off point. Instead, they are captured and taken to the gang boss, who wears a purple robe and hood and resides in what I'd describe as a throne room. While the gang is out of the room, Sandy starts a fight and knocks out the purple tiger. He then changes clothes with the gang boss. When the gang members return, Sandy, in the hood and robes, orders them to bring out Doris. Sandy's cover is blown when a blonde-haired woman named Myrna realizes that he is not wearing a ring that the real purple tiger wears. Sandy is captured and placed in a glass dome that is slowly filled with water. Myrna rescues him. She explains that the purple tiger is her father. An accident affected his mind, turning in him into a criminal. She asks Sandy to help. He agrees. Then he apprehends the gang. A few days later, he is back to writing traffic tickets, including another one to Doris Bailey. I guess this time he didn't feel like giving her a spanking. This story ends in More Fun number 15, but the feature would continue for several years. The final Radio Squad story appeared in More Fun number 87 in 1943. Siegel and Schuster were long gone from this strip by this point. They were working on Superman. This early Radio Squad story is a step forward when compared to other Siegel and Schuster work prior to this. The storytelling is much better. Siegel's story is much clearer than some of his earlier efforts. Schuster's art is also much more consistent. I especially like the girls in this story. That said, there is a definite rush to the pacing. The capture of the gang in the end takes exactly one panel. The action is pretty minimal compared to the Federal Men strip by the same team over in New Comics. The story itself was pretty silly. The villain's motives were rather weak. I think more could have been done with this. Still, it was enjoyable for a series of five two-paged episodes. I'll be covering more of the strip during my coverage of 1937 and beyond. Sven Elvin, the artist of Treasure Island adaptation, which I covered in episode 6, started two more novel adaptations in mid-1936. The first was Three Musketeers, the mid-19th century novel by Alexandre Dumas. The adaptation had a long run in more fun comics, which lasted from issue 11 through number 36. I've never actually read this book, but this story is so famous that I'm actually pretty familiar with the characters and the story itself. It follows Dardigan, a French nobleman who is intent on joining the Musketeers, the French military. Although this telling still fails to capitalize on the visual medium in which it's told, it is wonderfully illustrated by Elvin. It does suffer from the layout where captions beneath each panel tell the story, largely in exposition. Unlike some of the other DC novel adaptations, however, this one is actually kind of readable. 
At the same time that he was drawing the Three Musketeers strip for more fun, Elvin also adapted the lesser-known novel She in New Comics number 6 through 22. The novel by H. Ryder Haggard first appeared in serialized form in 1886. I must confess that I'm only aware of this book because it was adapted here, so clearly I've not read this one either. I don't read much in the way of so-called classic literature. Even when I was in school, I tried my best to avoid reading the assigned books. I recall one time in which I boasted to a few other students, and even the teacher, that I wasn't going to read the, the assigned book. Yet when it came time for the test on it, I set the curve. This proved to me that all I really needed to do was listen in class, since the ideas and facts tested upon were usually discussed. My reading time was then spent on comic books and science fiction novels instead of the classics. Getting back to She, this adaptation did not interest me at all. Elvin's artwork throughout was quite muddy, unlike his work on The Three Musketeers. The subject matter and the storytelling was also not appealing. I couldn't get into it at all, so I abandoned the story after a couple episodes. This one's a real stinker. I mentioned that Elvin also worked on the Treasure Island strip, which ran from New Fun number 5 through More Fun number 11. In issue number 12, it appears that the strip underwent a transformation. A feature called Pirate Gold begins its run through issue number 30. What's interesting about this is that it appears to be a continuation or replacement for the Treasure Island feature. At the end of the Treasure Island episode in number 11, the crew of the ship spots land. Pirate Gold begins with the crew of a ship spotting land. If you didn't know the story of the novel, and I didn't, or didn't realize that many of the characters' names were changed between issues, this could be thought of to be an alternate version of Treasure Island. I don't know if the strip was changed due to a rights issue, or if it's just a coincidence. In any case, I had as much trouble with this one as I did with She. I quickly lost interest in it. Largely because of the format and the poor storytelling technique, Elvin's artwork is decent here, somewhere between the quality of work on The Musketeers and the poor quality on She. The art takes a big dip around issue 20, which is where I gave up on it. Glancing through the remainder of the story, it switches from color to black and white with issue number 24. The black and white artwork is much better, but still not enough to make me want to finish this lame story. The Magic Crystal of History debuted in New Fun number 1. I discussed this feature in episode 5. After being dropped in mid-story in More Fun number 10, the feature returned from a one-issue hiatus in More Fun number 12 in 1936. Now the story was under the direction of Homer Fleming, the artist of Captain Jim and Sandor, both of which appeared in New Comics. The Magic Crystal stars two children, Bobby and Binks, who have found a glowing crystal orb in an abandoned mansion. The crystal transports the kids back in time where they have adventures. In Morphun number 12, the kids go back to ancient Persia, where they witness a conflict between Croesus, king of Lydia, and Cyrus, monarch of Persia. Croesus attacks, attempting to conquer his neighbor, but his plan fails. Cyrus and the Persians defeat Croesus and Sardis. Cyrus is ordered to put to death, but Croesus is impressed by the deposed ruler and spares his life. 
Unlike previous adventures of Bobby and Binks, the kids are just bystanders in the story and do not interact with any of the people they are observing. The kids do little more than provide commentary on the battle as if they are watching a movie, not actually going back in time. It is noted that the magic of the crystal allows them to understand the language spoken by the Persians. By Morphon number 16, the opening of each story is worded in such a way that it appears Bobby and Binks are no longer going back in time at all, they are merely seeing historical events in the crystal. More adventures follow in later issues. In each issue, Bobby and Binks view a different time period. They witness many great battles, including the invasion of Greece by Xerxes, which served as the basis for 300. Along the way, they also see many famous historical figures, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Hannibal, and others. Most of their travels focus on Western civilization, primarily Greece and Rome, then expanding to later European history. Beginning with Morphon number 20, a story title is included with each issue, denoting the event or historical figure being observed by the kids. Fleming's artwork in Morphon number 12 is presented in black and white. Later episodes were in color. The black and white episode looks very rough and rushed. Subsequent stories improved dramatically in terms of art. Fleming has a good handle on the depiction of ancient battle scenes, featuring large oppo opposing armies. Considering each event was covered in a mere two pages, he had very little space to work with. So for that, I give him credit. However, these pieces read like summaries of historical events. The artwork makes them slightly more interesting than a standard history book, but not by much. I would have preferred to see Bobby and Binks actually do something, like they did in the earlier stories. Either that or remove them completely. The appearance of the kids changes over time as well. They started as younger kids, maybe 10 years old, but in later episodes they appear to be teenagers. Bobby was depicted with blonde hair in early episodes, but later his hair was, uh, was colored dark. Along the way, there were also a few oddball episodes. For example, in Morpha number 26, the names of the kids are changed from Bobby and Banks to the more generic Johnny and Jane. But the change was only for that one issue. In Morphon number 30, the standard heading featuring a picture of the kids peering into the crystal was redrawn in a cartoony style, probably by another artist. However, the rest of the strip still appears to be drawn by Fleming. The feature lasted until Morphon Comics number 50, finally bowing out as superheroes like the Spectre began taking over the title. While the time travel aspect of the magic crystal may contain elements of science fiction, it was by no means a straight-up sci-fi strip. There were actually very few pure science fiction features introduced at National other than Don Drake and the Super Police, both of which were discontinued near the end of 1936. When artist Tom Hickey came to work for National in mid-1936, he took over two existing strips, Brad Hardy and Wing Brady. He also created two new strips, Mark Marson of the Interplanetary Police debuted in Morphun number 15. It was pure science fiction. The story takes place in the future year of 2060 on the planet Ciro. An inventor, Professor Hillary, has disappeared along with his plans for a giant sunray cannon. The planet of the Red People are suspected of the kidnapping. 
Captain Waldo of the Interplanetary Police calls in his best agent to investigate the case, Mark Marson. In his flying car, Marson arrives at headquarters for a meeting with Waldo and Gail Hillary, the professor's daughter. Okay, here it is, the flying car. Old science fiction has promised me that we would one day have all sorts of futuristic inventions like television and cell phones, but this one is at the top of my list. I want the flying car, and I want it now. Anyway, back to the story. Mark Marson and his partner, Sergeant Montague, a.k.a. Monty, embark on the mission to save Professor Hillary. Gale joins them. Sarno, the monarch of the Red Planet, has other plans. He has an immense beard and wears a finned helmet, both of which give him a slightly silly yet imposing appearance. He sets a trap and lures the trio of adventurers into his grasp. Gale is separated from the others and taken to a laboratory where Sarno intends to transform her into one of the red people. And I can see why. Hickey draws Gale as an attractive young woman. She is wearing a skimpy top and booty shorts. For the time, this is by far the sexiest I've seen a girl drawn. Mark and Monty escape and fight through the guards to rescue Gale. In one scene, Mark throws a spear directly through the chest of one of the guards. Gruesome, but it's not drawn with a lot of gore. During the rescue, Gale throws several switches in an attempt to open the laboratory door. One of the switches activates a timer which will detonate a bomb. Mark tries to find the bomb to stop it before it explodes. On the way, the group finds Professor Hillary and releases him. When they locate the dynamite, it's held behind a locked door. With no time to get the door open, the group runs outside the building and escapes, just before it goes up in a grand explosion. The plans to the Sunray are destroyed in the building, but the professor is saved. So ends the first adventure of Mark Marson in More Fun Comics number 25. This one is great. The story is fast-paced, and unlike many of the stories I've covered which lose their way in the middle, this one stayed right on track. The artwork by Hickey is quite nice, especially Gale. Most of the episodes are in black and white. Some are two-color rather than full-color, meaning they're black, white, and red. The artwork also emphasizes the action, with plenty of fistfights, rope swings, and narrow escapes. Another Mark Marson story begins in More Fun number 26, but I'm going to save that one for later. The second feature, drawn by Tom Hickey, was called The Golden Dragon. It began in New Comics number 6, dated July 1936. The Golden Dragon begins with two American soldiers of fortune, Ian Murray and Ken Cockerell, discussing the treasure of Genghis Khan in a bar in the Far East. They make inquiries to the locals, earning the disfavor of Torgadoff, the leader of a nomadic band of Mongols. The two men agree to lead a caravan of ammunition across the Gobi Desert for Doris Willis and her father. They plan to look for the treasure along the way. Ian and Ken wear uniforms, brown jackets, and pants with neckties. However, it's not clear if they are part of an official unit or they're simply freelancers. They do recruit several men to assist them, including Lefty Murphy and Rod Riley. Shortly after entering the desert, they are also joined by Doris, the spunky girl whose father hired the boys. She is a crack shot, too, which comes in handy when Torgadoff and his men attack. Ian, Ken, and the others 
fight off the attackers and take refuge in a deserted monastery. Once inside, one of their guides, Pan Chi Lu, disappears. Ian finds a wall behind, behind which he can hear digging sounds. He orders the men to break through the wall. Before that can happen, though, Ian and Doris are attacked from behind by men coming in through a secret passage. In New Adventure Comics number 17, Ian, Doris, and Pan Chi Lu are led away from the temple as prisoners of the Golden Dragon Priesthood. Doris stops for a name change. Her name is now given as Doris Whipple, not Willis. I guess someone forgot her last name. The trio of captives are taken to the camp of Torgadov. When the guards aren't watching, Doris manages to free herself from the ropes binding her hands. She frees Ian and they make their escape, taking with them the fat leader of the Mongols as a prisoner of their own. Back at the monastery, the other men discover that Ian and Doris are missing. Ken leads a group of Cossacks who joined the group prior to reaching the temple in an effort to find Doris and Ian. Only four men are left behind to guard the, ca uh, the caravan inside the walls of the monastery. When the rescue party leaves, the Mongols attack. Ken finds Ian on the road with his, with his prisoner in tow. They make their way back to the monastery, which is now surrounded. Ian sneaks back inside via the secret passage from which he exited. The group then makes a stand against the invaders, winning the fight without losing a single man. Following the battle, Pan Chi Lu tells Ian that the fat Mongol prisoner is the Jalama, the man who the caravan was bringing the ammunition to. When questioned, the Jalama claims to be on the same side as Ian and his friends. He is also an enemy of Torgadov. Fearing another attack, Ian decides to leave the monastery immediately. Doris, who has now changed her name back to Willis and suddenly dyed her brown hair blonde, agrees. They return to the trail and continue on a long ride in search of Genghis Khan's treasure. They see new enemy troops, but they do hear the sound of trumpets following them on both sides. During the journey, Ian and Doris grow close. Ken is jealous. When Ian goes scouting, Ken makes his own play for Doris, ignoring her refusals. She is forced to fight him off. When Ken is alone on the outskirts of the camp, he is actually approached by Torgadov. He reveals his attack plan and promises to give the woman to Ken for his help in winning the battle. Disguised as skeletons, several of Torgadov's men enter the camp. They abduct Doris, the Jalama, and several men. The rest of the camp is then attacked. Ian hears the fight and rushes back. He discovers many of his friends missing, and the camels are stampeding. Once order is restored, the party sets out again without the missing men or the camels. Meanwhile, Torgadov leads his prisoner, including Ken, away from the camp. Ken is put in a dungeon where he, f he first has a dream of an encounter with a serpent. Then he has a vision of Ian and Doris. Torgadov has him under his control and forces Ken to write a mysterious letter. Ian and the others keep a lookout for their missing friends along the trail. They eventually come to another monastery. This one is still in use by monks. Panchilu sets up an audience between Ken and the abbot. The abbot has a prophetic vision of a messenger. When the messenger arrives, he carries a letter from Ken, which tells Ian to come alone to bargain for the lives of Doris and the others. While waiting for Ian, Torgadov meets the Jalama to settle their differences. He intends to offer up Doris as a bride to the head of the Golden Dragon Priesthood. If he refuses her, 
the Mongol promises her to the Jalama. Wow, this story is long. It ran for nearly three years, growing from two-page episodes to four pages, then eventually six pages per issue. The storyline does seem to be making progress, though at times it is rather dull. This is the home stretch now, though, so let's see how it turns out. After meeting with Torgadov, the Jalama visits the captive Doris Willis. She throws him out, but we are then treated to a nice view as her shirt is ripped open. Torgadov's men then bring in the man the messenger has retrieved. It's not Ian, but Riley, whom was sent in his place. Torgadov is angry and sends Riley to watch Doris being offered up to the Golden Dragon, which turns out to be a giant golden serpent. Seeing that they intend to sacrifice Doris, Riley starts a fight. Ian, who followed Riley to the temple, sneaks in via the west gate. He is then taken to the main room where the sacrifice is taking place. Ian rushes in to rescue Doris. During the fight, he tosses Torgadov into the snake pit where the golden dragon awaits him. After the dragon crushes Torgadov, Ian draws his gun and shoots it to death. While his men enter the temple to take control, Ian carries Doris down from the stage. A search is then made, whereby they find Ken's dead body. Ian delivers the guns to the Jalama. His own guide, Panchi Lu, pays for them using the treasure of Genghis Khan, for it is revealed that he is actually the descendant of the Khan and rightful owner of the gold. He offers to show Ian and Doris the rest of the treasure and leads them to the altar where the serpent lies dead. The serpent was gilded twice yearly with gold. Doris and Ian then depart with the gold and each other. The End As I said, this story was long, 126 pages in total, running from New Comics number 6 to Adventure Comics number 36. Unlike many of the other long serials, this one stayed pretty much on point and didn't stray in different directions. That doesn't, however, mean that it was a good story. Much of the action is stiff and told in summary, while long, boring rides across the desert were drawn out for pages at a time. It reminds me of a long car trip, where most of the time you don't see anything interesting. Then you pass something that catches your eye, but it goes by so fast that you don't get a good look at it. I think the, st the story suffers from a few factors. A large cast of essentially interchangeable guys. Ian's men are all identified by name throughout the story, but there is never any real characterization to separate them. The group kind of reminded me of the Blackhawks, with similar outfits and all. The only difference was that at least one of the Blackhawks would shout, Pi-yiminy! every so often to differentiate him from the others. The Mongols in this story are depicted in the fashion of the time with yellow skin. There are also racial slurs used in the early episodes consistent with racism of the period. While this kind of depiction can often be offensive to modern readers, I think it is important to remember and understand the historical context in which these stories were published. Although Hickey's artwork is competently rendered, there are times that it looks rushed. None of it measures up to the work he did on Mark Marson either. One reason for this may be the coloring. This feature is told entirely in color, while Mark Marson was mostly in black and white. I think the color hurts the art. That's not the first time I've come to this conclusion on these early comics. I grew up reading color comics and never really appreciated black and white stuff until I was older. So I can imagine that the color did appeal to kids, but I can't imagine a kid really getting up for the, reading this strip and following it from issue to issue.
Up to this point, I've primarily been talking about the artists of each strip. I've rarely mentioned writers. In most cases, writers went uncredited. It can be assumed that many of the artists were writing their own strips, but not always. DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson may also have written several strips without credit. One feature that did contain his name in the byline was entitled Blood Pearls. It debuted in New Comics number 8. The story begins near Manila in the Philippines. A heavy-set white man named Baslin attempts to acquire the fabulous Blood Pearls. The price, he is told by a shriveled Asian man, is a young Chinese girl with which the old man can use to revive his own youth. Baslin returns to the city where he rescues the very girl he seeks from the clutches of a drunk Navy officer. Baslin then drugs the girl and carries her back to Old Dotto. During the exchange for the blood pearls, Dotto's nephew, Moreau, stabs his uncle in the back. He then takes the girl, leaving the pearls on the floor in a pool of Dotto's blood. Baslin picks up the pearls, but he's overcome with sudden fear. The feeling causes him to try selling the pearls immediately. However, none of the dealers in Manila will touch the blood pearls. Baslin, aboard his boat, is confronted by Sao Chung, the father of the kidnapped girl. The white man throws the other man overboard and hastily plans a return to the States. Baslin makes good his escape, reaching port in Seattle, but he is still in a panic which includes a fear of the number seven. He also keeps seeing a Chinese man, he believes it to be Sao Chung, following him. Baslin continues to flee, finally seeking refuge in the hayloft of a barn. A hobo attempts to steal the pearls while the fat man sleeps, only to die after falling on a pitchfork. Baslin makes his way across the country, seeing the Chinese man six times. On the seventh encounter in a jewelry shop in New York, the Chinese man is waiting. He kills Baslin, leaving the body and the pearls in a pool of blood. The Chinese man returns home where it is revealed that he is the brother of Sao Chung. It is also revealed that the curse of the blood pearls is that a man cannot rid himself of the pearls unless they are bathed in the blood of his untimely death. That's how the story ends in New Comics number 13. When I first began reading this story, I suspected that it was Baslin's conscience, not a real person, chasing him. I was kind of reminded of Poe's Telltale Heart, where his own mind was driving him crazy. To have it revealed that the, a real guy was following him was actually a bit of a letdown. The explanation at the end really wasn't done well either. Kind of like, here's a ton of exposition to explain everything. The artwork is by Munson Paddock, an illustrator born in 1886, who was a veteran newspaper comic strip artist of more than 20 years at this point. This was his first comic book work. He would follow up the Blood Pearls with another story called The Monastery of the Blue God, he also went on to work for Fawcett, Quality, and Fox Publications. Paddock was also a collector of railroad memorabilia. Paddock's art style is very expressive. I thought some of his faces looked particularly excellent. Baslin's face as he is driven crazy was great, as we see on the page in the second installment in New Comics number 9. He makes outstanding use of shading and expressions in their eyes. Other times, his work lends itself to a cartoonish style, such as the scenes in the hayloft. Other than a slightly clunky ending, I thought this story had a, was a surprisingly good suspense tale. It actually reminded me more of the short horror comic tales of the early 1950s published by EC, maybe with a little less gore.
One of my favorite artists of the period, Craig Flessel, was working on the Steve Conrad strip for New Comics, which I discussed in my last episode. Over in More Fun, he also created two new strips in 1936. The first was called Pep Morgan. It debuted in More Fun number 12. Pep is a student at Riverdale Prep School. Yes, Riverdale, the same school that would be the home to Archie Andrews. In the first episode, Pep substitutes on the baseball team when its star player doesn't show up for the game. He claims to have batted corn cobs on his farm in Kansas with his brother. The coach is unconvinced but needs Pep to fill out his team. Pep impresses everyone, including the coach, with his fielding ability at shortstop. Each issue of More Fun contained a two-page Pep Morgan story. Every issue said to be continued at the end, but they were essentially standalone adventures. Pep wasn't just a baseball hero. In More Fun number 14, he is the star of the track team and kidnapped from his bed by students at the rival school. Pep escapes and makes his way to the meet at the last minute. He doesn't have time to change his clothes, so he wins the mile race wearing his pajamas. More Fun number 15 and 16 show Pep Morgan playing football. He is also an accomplished skier and basketball player. In More Fun number 20, he is playing soccer and kicks the ball into the girls' dormitory. Pep sneaks inside to get the ball. Instead of taking a peek at the half-dressed co-eds, he disguises himself in their clothes to get out without drawing attention. I wonder what that says about Pep. In More Fun number 21, we finally see Pep fail at a sport. He tries out tennis and keeps hitting the ball too hard. The coach decides to have him try lacrosse instead. Despite this failure, Pep is just too good at everything. Even though I like sports, I'm basically a nerd, so the handsome blonde jock type was not something I thought highly of in school. Of course, comics were once enjoyed by all kinds of kids back in the day, including jocks. The, the idea that only geeks and nerds liked comics wasn't true at this time, so it stands to reason that they would have a sporty jock feature to appeal to the more active kids. Nerds could like it too, I suppose. And now with geek being the new chic, comics aren't just for geeks anymore. Flessel's artwork on the feature has a comedic nature to it. These strips were meant to be fun and fast-paced, and they are. Sometimes it borders on cartoony, but it is still visually appealing. Pep's adventures continued in more fun through issue number 29, which featured Craig Flessel's last work on the character. In 1938, another artist took over Pep's adventures, which moved to a new title. Pep appeared alongside Superman as another feature in Action Comics number 1. I'll be covering those adventures in a future episode. Flessel's creation, The Bradley Boys, first appeared in More Fun number 13. It starred teen brothers Tom and Jack Bradley. At first I suspected this series was going to be a rip-off of The Hardy Boys. The Hardys had been the stars of a series of novels written for teens and children beginning in 1927. I was wrong. The Bradley Boys was not a detective story. These adventures were more influenced by the Boy Scouts than the Hardys. The story begins with the boys making their, a long journey through the wilderness to Jug Mountain. They get lost and are forced to camp in the woods. They build a hut, a fire, and go hunting. These kids would have made good scouts. At the end of each episode, there would be a panel or two offering facts about the wilderness or advice on how to build helpful survival gear. So the strip was meant to be entertaining and educational. 
After living in the woods for months, they meet Harry Matson, a man on the run from the law. He is also living in the wild and takes the boys to a tree house where he lives. I do find this a little disturbing. They just befriend a man who admits to being a fugitive, then they agree to go to his tree house. I can only imagine the messed up things that would happen if this was a real life situation, especially since the boys are running around shirtless half the time. Instead, though, the man claims to be innocent and offers to take them home on a raft. The raft is sighted by Minky and Tatters, two men who tell the sheriff about the missing boys. They also identify Matson. As Harry and the boys are nearing their house, the sheriff spots them. When Harry runs, the boys follow. Once they're in the clear, one of the boys suggests a disguise, so Harry grows a beard and dones the clothes of a trapper. The trio continue living together in the woods for months. Kind of creepy. When the boys see an advertisement for the county fair, they convince Harry to take them. They come up with an act of their own as acrobats, while Harry assumes the role of a gypsy bear trainer. At the fair, Harry is turned down for a job, but the boys arrange to join the existing act of Miss Nia Noble. Both boys have a crush on her and start to fight. She then informs them that she is going on a date with Harry. Their time at the fair is cut short when the sheriff spots the boys. He chases them back into the woods and eventually catches them under a bridge. The Bradley boys dive into the river to escape. The current carries them downstream where they are spotted by an Indian girl, Princess Tan Elk. That's where the series stops in More Fun Comics number 29. Except for the rather inappropriate nature of two shirtless boys living in the woods with an older man, this isn't a bad little adventure story. I would have liked to know the reason that the boys were so reluctant to go home, though, but I can get by without it. The artwork is serviceable, but not spectacular. The boys are drawn to be rail thin, and at times their necks were unusually long. But the bottom line is that even though this was published during more innocent times, it's just creepy. The weird sexual aspect of this can't be missed. One panel even shows Harry sitting on one of the boys while grabbing at the other. I'm sure it wasn't intended to be viewed as dirty, but ew. Flessel may also have contributed art to another feature which began in More Fun number 13 called Thrilling True Stories. I say may have because he is not actually credited on the strip itself. Some sources credit him with the art, but I've got to say, I don't see it. The early episodes are really muddy and not clinging like Flessel's usual work. The strip is credited to Richard B. Speed, which sounds like a completely made-up name. However, I was able to locate three generations of the Speed family, all named Richard B. Based on some New Jersey census records I found, the second generation, Richard B. Speed, would have been 18 years old in 1936, the prime age for a young kid looking to break into comics. Unfortunately, that's all I can find on him. His son, Richard III, born in 1943, wrote a book about World War I entitled Prisoners, Diplomats, and the Great War. Whether this Richard B. Speed was truly the one who worked on Thrilling True Stories, I can't confirm. Fandom great Jerry Bales lists him only as the writer on the series in his Who's Who in American comic books. Bales also mentions him as an artist at the Chesler Studio in 1936 and 1937. That site lists Flessel as the artist on this strip. Like I said, it doesn't look like Flessel to me, though. 
especially since he signed nearly all of his work, and I can speculate that this might have been drawn by speed. The concept of thrilling true stories was very similar to It's a Dern Lie, the tall tale feature from New Comics. Readers were asked to send in their true story experience. The best stories were prom promised to be illustrated. Unlike It's a Dern Lie, however, thrilling true stories never carried a mention of who submitted the story. Each story was two pages in length. The early entries all consisted of exactly four panels per page with captions and no dialogue. Most of the tales were, had a rural angle. For example, one detailed a wounded mountain lion attacking a farmhouse. Beginning in Morphun number 20, the format changed slightly, adding more panels per page, and the story continued from issue to issue. This story followed the adventures of a cowboy on the trail and his encounters with grizzly bears. The last of the tr thrilling true stories appeared in Morphun Comics number 23. Though it promised to be continued, it never was. Speaking of to be continued, Way back in my second episode, I covered the early adventures of Sandra of the Secret Service. A new Sandra adventure debuted in 1936, beginning in Morphine number 14 with art by W.C. Brigham. Sandra was an adventurer who traveled to Gavonia and became entangled in a plot involving Princess Yonda. After successfully assisting in the rescue of the princess, Sandra takes on a mission on her behalf. She travels to the neighboring country of Respia under the name Mary Montel. In her new disguise, she attempts to sell a Respian official details about the Gavonian fortifications. The official claims this information is already in their possession, but Sandra succeeds in earning his trust. Another Gavonian spy named Lorenz sees Sandra and tries to kill her for betraying his country. She stops him and explains that she was sent by Princess Yonda, knowing that the Respians already had access to the information she was selling. Just then, the Respian authorities break into the room and arrest Lorenz. He is taken to a prison and scheduled for execution. Sandra dons another disguise, this time as an old woman selling apples, and she gets into the prison. She breaks Lorenz out of the cell, then the duo jump from a tower wall into the river while dodging gunfire. They make their way across the river, evading enemy soldiers, until they commandeer a biplane from a nearby airstrip. Lorenz is wounded, so Sandra must fly the plane, a skill which she obviously possesses. She is even able to shoot down one of the Respian pursuit planes. The pair of spies make it safely to the Gavonian border. Sandra then reports to Yonda, who congratulates her on bringing back military secrets. That seems kind of strange to me, because at no point during this story does Sandra actually get any military secrets from the Respians. Anyway, with her mission for Yonda co apparently complete, Sandra decides to return home to America at the conclusion of Morphun number 18. This, of course, leads to her next adventure, which I'll cover in another episode of my show. I really do like this strip. Compared to many of the action strips, it is exciting and pretty fast-paced. It covers a lot of ground very quickly. Contrast this with, say, The Golden Dragon, which just kept droning on and on, like Bill Robinson reading a con synopsis. Anyway, Brigham's artwork is good here, but not great. I would have liked to see more detail in the faces. There are no close-ups, and the faces at a distance are drawn very minimally. I did enjoy the plane chase and thought it was well done. Even though Sandra's apparent victory over a more experienced pilot is a 
little far-fetched, I'm definitely looking forward to more of this strip. The remainder of the features found in 1936 comics consisted of gags and text pieces. The centerfolds of each issue, which at the beginning of the year had been artist renderings, began the, became the home of gag and joke pieces. These were usually drawn by Vin Sullivan or Whit Ellsworth, both of whom were now working as assistant editors for Nicholson. New Comics number 5 through 12 contained famous poems illustrated, which printed the text of various poems accompanied by fairly detailed pictures, courtesy of artist Henry Kiefer. In some cases, the illustrations would take up a full page, with the poem appearing on the facing page. I don't consider myself a poetry expert, so it's no surprise that I've never heard of any of these selections. Well, okay, I've heard of one. Uh, the Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade, which appeared in New Comics number 12, it was actually familiar. Of the text pieces that appeared in these issues, the most interesting to me was one from New Comics number 8. Entitled Worthwhile Films to Watch For by I.W. McGovern, it talks about Oswald the Rabbit. Oswald, of course, appeared in many early DC comics, including New Fun number 1, and was originally created by Walt Disney. However, at this time, he was under the control of Walter Lance, Woody Woodpecker's creator. The article goes into detail about the creation of cartoons and includes several quotes from Lance. It made for interesting reading, which was not the case for most of the other text pieces. Lastly, I want to talk about a couple of ads that appeared near the end of the year. The first one appeared in More Fun number 16, cover dated December 1936. It was on sale in late October. The text of the half-page reads, You asked for it, and here it is. The most thrilling narrative cartoon magazine in the comic field. Bang-up adventure yarns and thrilling pictures by your favorite artists. Novelettes, short stories, short shorts, serials, and only a dime at all newsstands. The text is accompanied by a picture of a comic book cover dated December 1936. Yes, December 1936. It is Detective Comics number one. Another ad for Detective Comics, this time a full page ad, would appear a few weeks later in New Comics number 11. The text there reads, Just what you ordered, a high-stepping detective magazine in pictures, novelettes, short stories, serials, short sorts, by such favorites as Tom Hickey, Sven Elvin, Bill Patrick, Craig Flessel, Siegel and Schuster, Homer Fleming, Alger, be sure to get the genuine articles, only 10 cents at all newsstands. The cover is also depicted here with a December 1936 cover date. This was the comic from which DC would take its name and was the result of the business deal between Nicholson and Donenfeld. However, the actual issue of Detective Comics number 1 had a March 1937 cover date, not December 1936 as shown in this ad. This means the actual publication was delayed for a few months from what was originally planned. I'll be covering Detective Comics number one in full in my very next episode. So that's all I have for this time, folks. I hope you've been enjoying my coverage of early DC Comics. I haven't been receiving much in the way of feedback for the show, so if you're one of those three people out there brave enough to listen to it, why don't you send me an email? The address can be found in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to the two true freaks, Scott and Chris. 
Chris was uh, nice enough to send me a gift card, which I used to buy a new microphone, so hopefully this episode sounds a little bit better than previous ones. I'll be back again soon with another episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History.